0: Hi listeners, before we start, I want to talk to you about community. A podcast is a group effort. There's the hosts, the guests, and of course you, the audience. The more everyone works as a team, the better the show can and will be. Now we know all of you are busy people, so in order to make things as quick and easy as possible, we've put up a short survey on the show's website at obeythedna.com that you can fill out in just a few minutes. Doing so will help us to know how to make the show even better for you, our listeners, and grow this little podcast community of ours. So please, drop by ObeyTheDNA, that's one word, ObeyTheDNA.com, and click on the Listener Survey button at the top. Let us know about your tastes and what kind of show you want this to be, so we can continue to make it even more awesome. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yep. And today, we have a special Halloween treat for you. We're going to be talking about horror hosts, those denizens of the night who haunted the dreams of a generation for most of the 20th century. And to talk about horror hosts, we've recruited an expert on the subject, the maker of the documentary *American Scary* and author of numerous books on horror hosts, Michael Monahan. Welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And and just
2: and just to be clear, uh, mm-hmm. on the *American Scary* front, I was mm-hmm. the associate producer. Uh, ah. Sandy Clark and John Hudgens were really like the the driving forces behind making it. I'm just the
0: guy mm-hmm. who brought in all of the information. Right. Okay. So you were kind of like the researcher then?
2: I, I was. Basi- basically, the background story on that is that um, mm-hmm. Sandy was out was out here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was at a convention which featured our local host, Bob Wilkins, who had been on mm-hmm. the air on KTVU's Creature Features back in the early 1970s. And uh sandy saw that there was a line going out the door for bob and who had not been on the air for 30 years at that point and so that that attracted his attention he went over and talked with bob a bit and um and then uh talked to uh someone who was working with him and uh just wanted more information this was a new topic for him and uh so they they pointed him to me uh sandy came over i laid out basically, the history of TV horror hosts to him. And he said, well, John Hudgens and I are, have been making a series of short films, and we were thinking about doing a feature documentary. When I, I initially thought maybe we could do another short film about Bob Wilkins, but, man, mm-hmm. seeing this here, I think we got a feature. And that's how I got into it. So I laid it out. They were interested in doing something, and, that, and that's how the whole ball started rolling for that.
0: Ah, okay, interesting, huh. interesting. Well, let's take things back a step because we have listeners in Eastern Europe and South America and all over the world. And as far as I know, horror hosts are primarily only a North American phenomenon, aren't they? Largely, really, largely. You will
2: have there were a handful in England, a handful in Australia. Oh. There was a a character in Australia uh, called Deadly Ernest, who is actually. <laughs> Uh, a, a name that was franchised to different regions of the country, really? and it was a different character entirely. Uh, they would form, you know, they would create their own format in these different markets with a different actor, different style, and background for Deadly Earnest. Um, in England, there was uh, more recently there was a host called Nina, uh, who was initially uh, was Nina Hagen,
3: who mm-hmm.
2: was hosting horror movies, and then. Uh, there were uh, two Ninas that followed. The the last, most recent was Rachel Grant, um, mm-hmm. and she was on the air for a few years as, as Nina. At the same time that in Australia there was a, a woman named Tabitha uh, Clutterbug, but, mm-hmm. um, who was uh, had her own show, Graveyard Shift, mm-hmm. and so those kind of run concurrently, and that was. Sort of the last wave of things coming out of um, England, Australia. Although there was also a brief run for Doctor Terror in England, um, which in, which included the um, um, cooperation of uh, Kim Newman, who worked on on some of that. And I, and I can't remember mm-hmm. a lot of the basic details about that offhand.
3: But right. that said,
2: um, mm-hmm. yes, largely North American. Um, one of the things I had said to to Sandy early on is that, along with jazz, it's probably the only original art form to come out of uh, America.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, and um, it's, it's just well, the way things kind of fell together. Oh, uh, that's okay. So, well, here, why don't you – I was going to suggest, why don't you tell our audience um, – what exactly a horror host is? Because like I said, some of them might actually not know and give us a little bit of background about where they came from and such. Sure. Absolutely. So the, the TV horror host in America essentially existed
2: in a period between 1957 and the late 1980s, um, -hmm. as locally produced television programs. Now there, there were antecedents, um, Mm -hmm to to, uh, the hosts of 1957. But what happened in 1957 was that Universal released their shock package of horror films to television. The original classic Frankenstein's, Dracula's, The Wolfman, The Mummy, for the very, very first time on television. And this was a big, big deal. And Mm -hmm. so there were saturation bookings across the country. And in many areas of the country... um, local television stations would add a host to the mm-hmm. proceedings for a number of reasons. Um, one, local programming relied on local personalities, and each uh, station just de- defined themselves by their local personalities, their kid show host, their mm-hmm. news team, and then in 57 also their, their horror host, but also dance party hosts, that type of thing, so mm-hmm. that each station had um, basically had, if it, not a lock, then they're at least defined by the personalities that they had at their station. That was a big promotional thing for them. The other thing uh, was a more practical reason, which was that these movies ran from anything from from 60 minutes to 80 minutes long. And so you had a pretty wide range of time that had to be either filled or not so a host was able to step in and do 10 minutes worth of shtick between the commercials or five minutes worth of shtick between the commercials and still fit within an
0: hour and a half uh, time frame. Right. Wow. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. So that was uh, sort of the reason
2: for horror hosts. And they were, they were just embraced so enthusiastically at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And particularly among teenagers, and in a way, horror hosts uh, connected with what later in the '60s became known as the counterculture. You know, and they you could tie them into rock and roll, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know Elvis Presley and Zachary really mm-hmm. kind of appealed to the same audience. <laughs>
3: that's
2: that, that's what was going on there. Um, now, prior to 1957. TV had dabbled in in horror hosts. Um, the genre actually began on, on stage back in the 1920s with uh, spiritual shows. The, there'd be uh, magicians and spiritualist acts that mm-hmm. had the sort of flavor that you would later see in a TV horror movie host. Really? Um, huh. And then those evolved into something even more recognizable, uh, to later generations, which was something they called the spook show,
3: oh, okay. where
2: there would be a magician would add sort of a mad scientist act to what he was doing. There would be monsters. The um, There would be uh, illusions that had the sort of the shocking effects of the Grand Guignol added to it, like guillotines and and stabbings and monsters going into the audience and carrying people away, that type of thing, hmm. audience participation. Right. And then that further evolved in the 30s and 40s to the midnight spook show, which would have the spook show that would end in what they called the a blackout, where you hmm. would have glow in the dark ghosts. And skeletons flying through the audience, and then that would be followed by a movie.
3: Ah, okay. And
2: so that really became the template for what was later the TV horror movie
0: host. Um, now, had the first sorry, to interrupt, had the first horror host that we know of um, actually, what, the first horror host was Vampira, wasn't it? You know what, uh, Vampira is, still likely holds holds that,
2: but. Prior to it, there were uh, there was um, in 1948 and into the early 50s a program called Lights Out, which had moved 92. to television from radio, and oh, okay. a lot a lot of early TV was basically it had had dug into radio for um, its formatting, the variety shows, comic shows, even the dramas and mysteries.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And Lights Out was presented by. Um, a a fellow named Frank Gallagher Mm
3: -hmm.
2: as a, basically a floating head and a candle in the, and he would introduce this half hour drama. And in Mm -hmm. a sense, that also was another template for the horror host. And then uh, um, author Don Glute pointed Mm -hmm. out in his, in a book on uh, shock theater in Chicago, that Mm -hmm. in 1950, there was a host called um the Swami who hmm. and I think what they were doing was not it was another step in the direction. I wouldn't call him a full fledged right. horror host, but they took the lights out model and had a host who would um, show it, it rather than a a a uh, short drama would serialize a movie over the course of a week. It would be a mystery film. So the Swami would introduce it. There'd be 15 minutes of, you know, some film noir or mystery film. And then the next night, they would pick up from there. And over the course of a week, they would show an entire film. So in a way, that was radio on TV
0: as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I was going to ask if those stage shows, the spook shows you mentioned, if we know whether they were in an actual direct influence on the early horror hosts, where the early horror hosts had actually experienced those things.
2: Oh, you know what? They had to, they were, they were so popular during the thirties and forties during world war two, especially the midnight spook show was. And um, Bela Lugosi had his own spook show at one point. Uh, Glenn Strange and Lon Chaney appeared in, I believe Dr. Silchini's spook show uh, in the 1940s. And then later, And this is jumping ahead a bit, but um, Ron Sweet, who became the Mm -hmm. ghoul in the early 1960s, went to a Dr. Silchini spook show in Cleveland Mm -hmm. with some buddies of his. And after the show, as Dr. Silchini was loading up his stuff into the truck, Ron and his friends had walked around behind the theater. They saw him loading up, and Ron stole a gorilla costume.
0: Oh, my from, God.
2: Uh, from Dr. Silchini's show. And they used that costume later to meet Gullardy at Euclid Park um, in the dead of summer. And, uh, you know, Gullardy just thought it was such a baldy thing for him to do that he invited invite him down mm-hmm. to the station. Ron started hanging out at the station, became Gullardy's gopher, and then eventually, you know, became the ghoul in the 1970s. So spook <laughs> shows, yeah, spook shows affected hosts well into uh, the
1: 1960s. Wow, that's an amazing story. Huh. Now, I was going to uh, say, like, you mentioned um, that the, the horror hosts are part of the counterculture. And it's interesting, because thinking of that, if you go back to, to say, the early to, to mid-50s, you had the the horror comics were popular, and they always had, like, a narrator... Mm, right, that's true,
2: right, and that also came from that also uh you know came from radio and then huh. things like tales from the crypt and the crypt keeper mm. and um uh the uh, the old witch I think was the third and,
0: the witching hour wasn't it yeah,
2: um, was it there was the haunt of fear tales from the crypt, vault of horror um oh
0: yeah.
2: In any of Don, them. this is
0: your area. Yeah, they're, they're,
2: yes. What they did add, and that's you know, the, those books were produced by uh, Bill Gaines, uh, mm-hmm. who also ran Mad Magazine. Now, Mad mm-hmm. Magazine again, big influence in that sort of uh, counterculture beatnik humor type of thing in the fifties, and what they brought to those um, comic book hosts was a sense of humor, which, again, carried over to the TV horror host.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Universal Pictures, and I'm sorry, I, I realize I'm jumping all around on this. That's okay. That's but, par for the course with this show. <laughs> but uh, but Universal Pictures produced a series of films called The Inner Sanctum, based on The mm-hmm. Inner Sanctum Radio Show. And uh, of the five, either five or seven films produced for The Inner Sanctum, all but the last one were introduced by a head in, floating in a crystal ball. So essentially they were they're hosting their own movie. You know. Wow. <laughs> so all those all those pieces just kind of casually fall together in into the horror host of, of uh, 1957. Wow. That's crazy. And, so
1: <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: and Vampira is generally regarded as the first horror host and I stand by her as the first completely formed TV mm-hmm. horror movie host in yeah. um, 1954. However, uh, there ha- I haven't found documentation, but there was mm-hmm. apparently a, a, a fellow who hosted as the Black Cat in Washington, D.C., and in one interview I saw with him, he, he quoted 1953
3: oh. as the oh. year that
2: he was doing that program. And if that happens to be the case then then he would sort of take the mantle of uh, first tv horror host um but <laughs> until i see some sort of documentation tv listings or whatever um yeah i still have to stand by Vampira.
0: Yeah. right okay well that makes sense so how would the horror host idea then have spread from Vampira to the other uh, parts of the country like was vampire syndicated? how did this idea uh spread no well here's here this is
2: uh yeah, vampira was a local phenomenon it was los angeles mm-hmm. um l a right. she was a she was a uh, she was another t v host TV, TV already had hosts for different types of movies right um and in fact in um los angeles vampiros was, was so popular that they brought on a, a woman to um host their Romantic movies and called her voluptua, um, huh. hmm. and she she didn't last. She's a, a a trifle too saucy <laughs> for, <laughs> right. for the airwaves, but um, but Vampira got national recognition through Life Magazine. Um, oh. They came out and photographed did some photographs of her, just basically as this you know interesting character, an, an interesting piece of of television um mm-hmm. up to that point there were no you know the, this was not a trend or or a cultural event uh this was just a really an, an interesting eccentric host um mm-hmm. the movies that she hosted were generally uh mysteries as well although uh, occasionally a uh, uh, grade z horror would throw would, would <laughs> be thrown in there as well like the white zombie with Bela lagosi mm-hmm. uh that type of thing but um, her even then, her films tended to lean more toward mystery. It was really the shock movie package that um, launched um, this as a national phenomena and that and that 's mm-hmm. one of the reasons i I do think that spook shows had a big part in all of this because spook shows traveled the country, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. these hosts who who were appearing across the country um, they clearly lifted some ideas from the movies themselves uh from their experiences in radio, and a lot of them worked in radio um, and you know their own growing up comic books et etc but there are some visual elements that if if you look at photographs of a spook show and set it against a photograph of uh one of the hosts uh there there was a host uh in Wisconsin called Selwyn that, that I, I saw a photo of his set that especially uh mm-hmm. drove that home but even early Zachary at Roland whatever you you set photographs of those those stage settings side by side and they're almost exactly the same so right. i i think a lot of people uh especially since this uh television was was predominantly being produced in the east at that time so there was more of a theatrical tradition that went with it so i i just suspect a lot of these guys saw spook shows and that is reflected also in the presentation that that sort mm. of goofy stagey corny sort of right. uh, sort of yeah. thing that they were doing early on
1: i i, I think i'd have to definitely agree because uh one of the interesting things to, that that I just kind of hit on from all the stuff you've mentioned is that, Vampire is the first horror host, but nobody picked up that shtick for a long time. It seems like all of the other ones were the mad scientists or the demented crypt keepers or the 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 weird supernatural vampire master type guys in their lair.
2: Right. the the uh, the interesting the most interesting thing about Vampira is that um, she was created whole, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mila Nermy, who who created Vampyra, was an artist and really had a strong sense of design. And Mm -hmm. when she spoke with us, she talked about designing Mm Vampyra and, um, you know, how how important it was that it was black and white Uh um, because that, you know, black and white emphasizes form. And you know, so she she really had wow. she yeah, she really had design aspects in mind when she created that character. And then the personality uh she was looking at television and just creating something that, that would be sort of a, um, a like an, almost like an Adams family opposite of the sort of white bread stuff that was being presented <laughs> on T V. So it was a satire in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and after and, and her show was huge,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: um, as her contract was coming around for renewal, the station wanted her to give up um, a percentage of her ownership in the character so that they would control it rather than her. She refused, mm-hmm. and they fired her. That, that was oh. that's basically what went on. I'm sure oh. as a personality, she may not have been the easiest person to get along with anyway. Mm-hmm. but when it but business is what i think really just broke that bond mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and yeah as you say there was a gap after that uh before the shock uh pictures came along the only other thing and it came out of LA there was a doctor diablo and i mm-hmm. believe that was 1956 um who had a brief run on on a station in in southern california as well but right beyond that it really was pretty quiet until the shock package because mm-hmm. that sort of um uh coalesced everything you know it just you've got frankenstein you've got dracula mm-hmm. you've got the mummy boom it it really was just I, I, and I go back to rock and roll. It, it's just like, mm-hmm. it's just dropping rock and roll into the middle of everything, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It, Cause otherwise, you know, people you know, it, they didn't, stations didn't have a lot of reasons to pull together stray grade Z horror movies. Cause the only stuff that was out there prior to the universals were things like, you know, from monogram and Aster pictures and, mm. uh, you know, they were they were not heavy draws, let's say. And mm-hmm. you know, the universals were just perfect for mm-hmm. for this, this whole thing because oh yeah. Not only were they great movies with great monsters, monsters mind you.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know?
2: It's just like here are monsters. Boom. There's your identifying subject right there.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And they had the added appeal of of being the films that grown-ups, that the parents grew up with. Right, yeah. And that kids were discovering for the very first time because these things had, had not been in theaters for years, mm-hmm. and they certainly hadn't been on television. So it was really, it was, you know, fun for the whole family.
1: Right, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Everybody had a stake in that.
1: That's kind of interesting, too, because I was wondering, um, there there doesn't seem... To have ever been a big like backlash of concerned citizen groups in that protesting horror hosts. and I find that kind of interesting because I think back as a little kid, I loved the Ghoul, and wow, did he do all kinds of horrible, horrible things on error. But it's it, you never seem there didn't seem to be any kind of I guess organized resistance, and I'm wondering is that something? No, th- that, no there
2: there absolutely was. Yeah, there was. And, yeah, at at the time. You know, at the time, um, their, their PTAs, churches, and citizen groups um, with conservative leanings were always uh, vigilant toward things like, you know, rock and roll or horror. Mm. You know, they, you know, these are the people who shut down *Tales from the Crypt*, *Vault mm-hmm. of Horror*. You know, mm. so, um, but one of the main concerns with introducing these monster movies these horror films to television was yes they might create a a reaction so Mm -hmm. another aspect of the horror host another another reason they were there was to help take the edge off some oh right you know and you know that that may be why you had so few hosts who were serious you know you know hosts that were not you know, trying to add to the horror of it. You would have, oh, you know, the hosts were always friendly. You
3: yeah. know, mm-hmm. they,
2: they might have a diabolical sense of humor. They might be sarcastic <laughs> even. But, you know, they tended to be pretty lighthearted overall, and that helped kind of cut the the darkness a bit. And it, mm-hmm. I think that actually helped them with a lot of these, with these uh, citizen groups. But it didn't stop them. You know, right. uh, stations would would constantly get complaints,
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: and you know, in in some you know in some cases, uh, there were sort of uh, it's almost minor, but kind of culturally interesting that mm-hmm. uh, when the shock pictures were first out, uh, many of them were showing up um, in the middle of the week. They'd be mm-hmm. on Wednesday and mm-hmm. Thursday night.
0: Uh, I, I was going to ask about that. What time of day were these generally shown, or yeah, when in, were these shown?
2: Yeah, in general, they were they were shown uh, late night on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and okay. the idea being that really these are movies for adults. Mm-hmm. But what teachers would find is on Fridays, kids would be coming in and falling asleep in class because they've been <laughs> staying up. So right. Stations, it, 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 honestly, because of that, many stations moved the uh, shows to Friday and Saturday night.
0: Huh, right. Just because the kids were conking out. <laughs> right. No, that, that makes sense. Because if I recall right from uh, the film Turn Blue, I believe it was the film about Goularty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the he was on Friday nights, wasn't he? He was a Friday night sensation.
2: He was. And he was so big that the... Um, expanded him to uh saturday uh he had a saturday show but that was on during uh, the basically the family hour i think it was six, six o'clock on on saturdays and right. then again he was still so popular that they wound up giving him a monday through friday afternoon kid show called laurel gillardy and hardy
3: <laughs> right
2: he, yes he would show laurel and Gilardi, uh laurel and hardy shorts Right. So he there was a period of time where Gallardi was on the air in Cleveland um, six days a week, seven times a week. Huh, right. Yeah. And uh, he was so popular on Friday nights. Uh, the police said that um, the uh, crime rate dropped like 75 <laughs> percent. Yep. Yeah. I can believe that. Yeah.
0: Now, he, no, he was he
2: was he was huge. But but they're going back to your earlier point about uh, complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, toward the end of his run, they had created a uh, soap opera parody of Peyton mm-hmm. Place called Parma Place. Well, right. And Parma is a uh, uh, a district, um, one of the neighborhoods in the Cleveland area. Yes. And <laughs> um, the residents of Parma were up in arms about it, and they they came down to the station with a petition and made them take that off the air.
3: Oh, wow. So
2: that, because they just they they were they just thought it was so insulting to them, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and the, and the thing is, it was really huge. I mean, the, and but people loved it. A lot of people in Parma loved it, but it was really just those sort of blue nose sniffers who were just well, mm-hmm. this, well, this doesn't reflect well, and this doesn't, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think it was I, I think it was Big Chuck Shadowski was a friend of uh, Ernie Anderson who was Gallardi. Right. We told the story about how there was this, uh, at the Civic Hall, they had this big orchestra mm-hmm. playing, uh, uh, you know, for an evening of music, and there was a big audience there for it. And at one point, the conductor was, uh, was introducing different musicians in the first chairs, and they got down to this, this young woman who was playing violin, who was so-and-so from Parma, and the entire mm-hmm. audience yelled,
3: Parma! <laughs> and she was
2: just mortified, and right. so they sort of said, "Yeah, okay,
0: I think that's about it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> so, okay, so, so then, once uh, the shock theater was released, who became the horror host that everyone was copying then, or was there one? You know, that's that, that's a good point because, um, by and large uh... the people that we spoke with
2: who were especially the older broadcasters um, mm-hmm. would would be quick to point out that uh, they really didn't know what was going on in other markets all that mm-hmm. much i mean you didn't have the, the sort of reach that you had even in the in the seventies or, or you know once cable and satellite came out you could sample things from other areas of the country but mm-hmm. syndicated programming was, was you know, generally restricted to your major network stuff—ABC, NBC, CBS. You know, everyone saw Green Acres, but not everybody mm-hmm. saw uh, Zachary.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: But now that said, I think there are three. There, there were three basic templates for mm-hmm. for horror hosts, and there, there. You know, there, there are definitely some some others out out there, but the three basics are, um, Vampira. Zachary and Gallardi; those are the three Mm -hmm. horror host types that are out there. Um, And vampire, especially, was kind of a lock. Mm -hmm. Um, Women who hosted uh, hosted horror films, and there were many fewer than there were men, Mm -hmm. tended to go with that model. Uh, There are variations within the model. "Cremation Mortem," for instance. Mm -hmm. Was it, she? She wore a bustier and 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 whatnot, but she wasn't sexy. She was mm-hmm. uh, she was kind of more Mama hanish and mm-hmm. had a kind of a Betty Davis sort of accent that she used. Mm-hmm. But many, many more of them, like Macabra and Misty Brew and um, Elvira, I mean, really the most mm-hmm. obvious, and there was a whole lawsuit on right, yeah. that. Um, but all of them followed that. Um, vampire template Now mm-hmm. the men had a, had a lot more wiggle room And Zachary was Sort of a uh, You know What was he He mm-hmm. lived in the crypt it seemed But mm-hmm. was he a vampire
3: nah,
2: Maybe not really He would talk about blood And his wife slept in the coffin And he'd drive a stake through her heart To calm her down once in a while Right. <laughs> but he was also kind of mad scientist and he would play with beakers and have weird experiments with with giant amoeba and uh, using cauliflower for brains and, you know, mm-hmm. all this other kind of crazy stuff. So he kind of fit both of those molds, the vampire right. and the mad scientist. And then Gallardi right. was just the rebel. He was mm-hmm. the, you know, he was the um, um, really the crazy Mad Magazine beatnik of, mm-hmm. of tv and that model in cleveland clearly mm-hmm. you, you know you got a through line from Gallardi to the ghoul to the son of ghoul you know all of them followed that that's that same strength um but then across the country you would still have other characters who were more you know crazy and upbeat uh mm-hmm. ned the dead um there was a there was a character in uh, flint michigan called christopher coffin uh, Reed Farrell who, like mm-hmm. Ernie Anderson, was also a voice actor, um, and it, strangely, and I, I was never able to nail him down on this. I talked one time, but the Ernie Anderson would sign his Gallardi autographs without an H in in Ghoul, so it'd be G O U, boom. Christopher Coffin would sign mm-hmm. his autographs C R I S T, so no H in Christopher. And I don't huh. I I don't know if he did that as a tribute to Ernie or not, but he he knew Ernie Anderson, so okay. it's it's possible. And the uh, Christopher Coffin character also had the uh, had dark glasses, a beard, and a goatee, like Gulardi. But he wasn't he wasn't insane. He was uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: he was a, a much more uh, sort of sarcastic, cultured character. Right. Mm. But um, they 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 swam in the same pool, so I'm I wouldn't be surprised if he took some influence from him now the other Mm -hmm. the other character that uh, directly took from from galore that's that i find really interesting is Mm -hmm. jerry g bishop who is spangoolie in chicago
0: ah Mm -hmm. okay
2: now jerry g bishop was uh, a dj a very popular dj in cleveland Mm -hmm. at the same time that uh, ernie anderson was on the air as Gillardy. And he, they even, uh, I think it was KYW, the station, counter-programmed against WJW, which was Gillardy's station.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: they would counter, they counter-programmed they counter Galardi's Masterpiece Theater with Jerry G. Bishop um, in a dance program called uh, uh, Jerry D. What was it? Dancing with Jerry D. heck Whatever. So, anyway, he had a dance show that was on opposite. Um, mm-hmm. Then he got a DJ job in Chicago, and he went to Chicago, and he mm-hmm. took along a lot of the same sound cards that they're using at the uh, radio and TV stations there
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, that were also used on the Glardy show, then later on the Big Chuck and Little John show, et cetera. Et cetera. So those right, familiar right. sounds would, would show up on his radio program.
3: Mm-hmm. Then
2: he he was a... He was also the um, voice announcer at Channel 32 in Chicago. So at the, you know at the top of the hour, you're watching Channel 32, blah 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 in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know that that you know stay tuned for such and such. That was right. that was his job for a while. So the station started a uh, a horror show. They started showing horror movies under the title Screaming Yellow Theater, mm. and Initially, they would just have title cards, and Jerry G. Bishop would uh, would uh, do the announcing under the title cards, you know. And it was he for the first week or so he just did it pretty straight. But after a mm-hmm. while, he started adding a little bit of accent to it, and mm-hmm. then he started goofing on the movies more and more during those those breaks. Mm-hmm. And they finally put an illustration of him on the title cards to go with all of that. And then they finally said, well, look, let's put you in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. So he created Svengulli. And as he said, yeah, mm-hmm. it was just, it was a variation on Ghilardi, Svengulli, mm-hmm. Ghilardi. He just kind right. of put a spin on that. And, but his character had the, had the same sort of counterculture qualities that Ghilardi had, but updated from beatnik to hippie. Mm-hmm. And, but he had the dark glasses, the beard and mustache. Uh, right, and the same sort of the same sort of seat of the pants attitude as well, mm-hmm. and uh, so at at some point he also pulled in the most famous Gallardi joke. You know, as as I mentioned earlier, he he would just he would go to town on on Parma. He would just march okay, right. mercilessly <laughs> on the air, and any mm-hmm. someone mentioned the word Parma, he would say Parma. And you know that was that was the punchline for him. And you know, or they'd start playing polka music and say, <laughs> "Hey, does this program go to Parma?" Right. You know, um, and so, Jerry D. Bishop picked that up and using the local town, Berwyn. Mm-hmm. So anytime someone mentioned you know that they were going to a, a specific place at a specific time, you'd you know you'd hear a over going Berwyn, or when mail would come in and Berwyn. And he, he had plucked that from from Ghilardi's Parma joke. Well, cut mm. to mm-hmm. 2016, Rich Coase, who was the son of Svingguli in Chicago after Jerry G left, and had worked with with Jerry G on the original Svingguli program.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he's now Svingguli on the Me T V network, national. Wow. One of the last. Uh, I, there are maybe three. Maybe four horror hosts left in the country, swinggoly, <laughs> who's national, the son of ghoul in in Cleveland, Zombo in Reno, and I understand there's a program called Bordello of horror and i I've seen it don't know too much about it um mm. but that's really that's that's kind of it and yeah. um but uh uh Rich Coves still mm. uses the Berwyn gag. So here wow. you have the longest running local joke in television <laughs> history. Oh, like over 50 years people are wow. still using the the Parma and and Berwin variations as a gag on on network television. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And it's the simplest thing, but mm. for some reason it's a hook and people just mm-hmm. won't give that up. The other <laughs> Now the other connection with Jerry G and in Cleveland, that's mm-hmm. that's interesting, is that um, Jerry G, being one of the top DJs, was the designated uh, point person when the Beatles came to town,
3: mm-hmm. uh.
2: and eventually he traveled with the Beatles, and he was the radio guy who would put out, you know, for all the stations. He was the guy on the ground who would who would right. hang with the the Beatles and um, uh, give reports on the, on the tour as it was happening. Right. Right. But during, um, during their stay in Cleveland, they'd have, they'd have press conferences and, um, Jerry G Bishop would run into uh, to, um, uh, Ron Sweet Mm
3: -hmm. at these
2: press conferences because he was also a huge Beatles fan and Ernie Anderson would help him get into these press conferences. So, Mm -hmm jerry g and um and ron swede knew each other from these things so Mm -hmm. when jerry g went to uh chicago he was Finguli for a couple of years and then uh the station was bought by the kaiser networks and the kaiser decided to syndicate the ghoul to their various stations across the country we got him out here in in san francisco in 1973 Mm -hmm. but they bumped Svengooley off the air mm. in Chicago and replaced him with the ghoul
3: hmm.
2: which did not go down well with with the people in, in Chicago who were hugely loyal to Svengooley. Right. And plus Ron yeah. Ron came out and his first thing, Well, we finally got rid of that no talent Svengooley
3: mm. did not
2: endear him <laughs> to the audience at all. So no. But mm-hmm. you know, but they they knew they knew each other back in Cleveland, and uh, mm-hmm. so it's just another uh, you know just another strange little bit of coincidence that tied them all together.
0: Now I've I've noticed uh, having seen various films and read a little bit about horror hosts um, that Cleveland seems to be like the place for horror hosts for some reason. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's almost like ground zero in some ways for horror hosts. Is Can there think, a special reason for that? Um, I there I think there are a couple,
2: and one mm-hmm. one is that. Especially during that period, uh, Cleveland was kind of underrated as Mm -hmm. a uh, media hub, but it really was. Outside of New York and Chicago, Cleveland was was actually a really big media market. And Mm -hmm. additionally, uh, Chuck Shudowski had pointed out that um, they were also a big test market. Mm -hmm. He, uh, He said they had the Princess phone three years before it went national. Because they were testing it in Cleveland, so there's something there's something about just the demographics of Cleveland that are appealing to media and uh, so I, I do think that that's part of it now Cleveland's first horror host was actually another radio DJ uh, named Mad Daddy, and he briefly hosted Shock theater um, in Cleveland uh, but he was not popular on television. He was really, he was great, great, great for radio, but just too abrasive for uh, television. So then there was that gap. And then there was Goularty. And everything that you see that followed, really followed in the heels of Goularty. He was that popular. He was so popular. He was, now he was, the he was just he was a cultural event. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A real game changer. And all of the hosts that you see, that you see that kind of grew up out of that were in some way or another attached to to Galardi. Like Big Chuck and Houlihan followed immediately after Galardi. And Chuck Shadowski had worked with um Ernie Anderson on the Galardi show. He was one of the directors of the Galardi show, brought in a lot of the elements that were popular in the Gilardi Mm -hmm. show, including some, a lot of the music and a lot of the visual effects ideas, because he's a real experimenter and uh, putting Gilardi into movies that came from Chuck Uh, Mm Shadowski. So there were a lot of things that, that he was directly attached to. And then of course, after um, uh, big Chuck and and Houlihan, the ghoul came along Mm
3: -hmm. and the
2: ghoul, it happened because Ernie was coming back to town to do a special with Chuck McCann and mm-hmm. wanted his old Gallardi suit so he could do a, a Gallardi sketch. Mm-hmm. And Ron had saved all of that material after Ernie, after Ernie had left town.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, you know, w- he used the opportunity to ask Ernie Anderson if he would come come back to Chicago, or back to Cleveland, rather, maybe mm-hmm. once a month and just, like, tape four shows. Just do Mm -hmm. four shows in a a day, head back to L.A., where he was currently situated. And Ernie was just, first of all, too much work, no thanks. And secondly, nah, already done it. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. Ron asked for permission. Hey, can I do this? Can I try it? And Ernie pointed out, well, store broadcasting owns the name Gulardi, so you have to Mm -hmm. change that. Maybe shorten it to the ghoul or something. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: that 's how that kicked off, so then you had Ron Swede the ghoul now mm-hmm. um, there was <laughs> and again, as so often happens, there was a lawsuit here, but of course, son of ghoul Kevin Scarpino
3: mm-hmm.
2: scarpino used to work loosely on mm-hmm. the ghoul show. he was also working with the cool ghoul at at uh, w o a c in uh, in Canton, Ohio. But he also hung out with Ron Sweet and, and that crew in Cleveland for a bit as well. There's some old shows where you, you see Kevin Scarpedo in the background. He also run, won a ghoul lookalike contest that mm-hmm. Ron was running. And when he, when he run, won the contest, uh, Ron Sweet introduced him as the son of ghoul. Mm-hmm. And right. there's taped evidence of this. This is on film, so we, we see that. Now, Mm -hmm. at that point, Scarpino had no interest, no idea that he was going to pick that up at all. It was just like, Mm -hmm. this was really, really fun. I really enjoyed this. Boom, done, gone. Ron Sweet goes off the air. Um, Kevin Scarpino is working with the cool ghoul at WOAC for a while. And then the cool ghoul, uh, George Cavender, he leaves the station. And the station is still interested in having a host for their thriller theater. So Kevin Scarpino decides to um, um, audition for that. Mm-hmm. And he figures, having grown up with Galardi and the ghoul himself, he's a huge, huge fan, he says, well, I, I figured um, you had to have certain things if you're going to be host, a horror host in, in Cleveland. So he got the beard and the mustache, and you know he actually did begin with some of the catchphrases that were familiar to both Gallardi and the Ghoul. He didn't. He otherwise didn't look like either of them. He had a top hat, dark glasses, a cape. You know, all kinds of different changes, cosmetic changes. But some of the early stuff could really, arguably, be said to to look very much like Gallardi and the and the Ghoul. So Ron Sweet sued him. Um, hmm. The judge did not agree that this constituted copyright infringement, because basically, hmm. for a number of reasons, the most important being that Ron didn't own anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> he, did, he didn't have a copyright on bearded mustache. He didn't <laughs> right. have a copyright. It he already
0: on, taken from someone else. E-
2: exactly. Uh, he didn't have a copyright on Turn Blue. He didn't have a copyright hmm. on anything. So and then and the judge and you know, on, in a larger sense, the judge is also saying, well a horror host can be defined as um you know, basically a, a, a colorful character who does comedy and hosts horror movies. So mm-hmm. she gave she gave the definition you know, a, a really broad broad sweep and just didn't feel there was there was anything to that. And that, that mm-hmm. led to um a lifelong really uh um battle between these two guys ron swede and 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 kevin scarpino and but the ironic part of that is that while ron Mm -hmm. has been on and off the air with big gaps um Mm -hmm. i mean decades um you know he was was off the air for like 12 years before he came back or something Mm -hmm. um kevin scarpino once he started was on the air every weekend every weekend without a break, mm-hmm. uh, even switching stations for th- over mm-hmm. 30 years.
3: Mm-hmm. Now.
2: Wow. So he just hit his 30-year mark. But, yeah, WOAC closed down. They're, they're mm-hmm. closing down. And Kevin uh, got a job at uh, um, a news station in Cleveland and was able mm-hmm. to transition, ending one show on a Saturday night and on the news station the following Friday. So he didn't miss a beat in, huh. in all of oh. those 30 years
0: now obviously so therefore horror hosts in cleveland have had a huge cultural impact is there any place else in the united states where horror hosts had an equal cultural impact on the local uh the local culture
2: yes yeah um to varying degrees um like Zachary uh, had -hmm. a huge impact in um in the new york area uh especially Mm -hmm. when he was working there and and nationally as well he had a uh, uh, hit with um, mm-hmm. uh, Dinner with Drac, and right. a, and a smaller hit with a follow up uh, of the Monster Mash, but he was on Dick Clark's American Bandstand with mm-hmm. Dinner with Drac, and so he got national exposure for that, and that mm-hmm. that was you know that charted that was a a hit record nationally, so he he definitely had an effect. I can I can speak personally here in. Um, mm-hmm the San Francisco Bay area with Bob Wilkins who is like huge on, on creature features here in in the 70s he was also doing a uh, similar horror show in Sacramento from the mid 60s and for a time mm-hmm. he was doing both programs at once so uh, there'd be Bob Wilkins had two double feature horror movies on the same night one in Sacramento oh. one in one in uh, San Francisco for many years But um, he he had uh, just a huge impact locally for a number of reasons, Uh, most of which were just presentation and personality. It was just it was such a fun, fun show. Um, Mm -hmm. But also some of it was timing as well, because Star Trek was being resurrected first in syndicated television and KTVU his station was running Star Trek so he was doing a lot of promotional stuff for that and it was just at that time that the Star Trek conventions were being launched and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Bob Wilkins was heavily involved with those and with local promotions of, um, of the various Star Trek conventions and then when the movies started being produced again the cast of Star Trek were regulars on the Creature Features show. They would come in to do really? interviews and things like that. And huh. Bob Wilkins was like the master of ceremonies at a number of these these the seminal Star Trek conventions here in the Bay Area. So um, he had a big cultural impact there. And then you have Star Wars, mm-hmm. which was produced locally. So right. there, were, there were episodes of Creature Features where folks would... Come over from from Lucasfilm and drop in oh, and do wow. do interviews. So Gary Kurtz and his wife were interviewed on Creature Features, mm-hmm. uh, and they 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 had just come from the Academy Awards a few weeks earlier, and um, you know and they were promoting some other some other show, but they brought down props and costumes and things like that for for the program, and you know there was that. Mm-hmm. So then Bob went down to uh to a screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark in Los Angeles uh, Mm -hmm. with some folks and he saw George Lucas and so he walked over to him goes, Oh Mr. Lucas, uh my name's Bob Mm -hmm. Wilkins. I host a program in San Francisco and uh I really enjoyed Star Wars and just wanted to say hi. Mm -hmm. And Lucas said, I know you. I used to watch you. Right. (laughs) And so Lucas grew up watching creature features and eventually offered Bob, the, pre- the, the job of president of Lucasfilm, oh, really. when they were building to the, the facilities, because mm-hmm. basically he said, I'm not interested in dealing with the press and things like that, and you do that really well, I would, you know, mm-hmm. I'd like you to do this job, and Wilkins actually did seriously consider it, but it would have meant moving to Los Angeles for a couple of years while they built the facilities in the san francisco area over here in marin and he just didn't want to do that to his family so he turned it down (laughs) but wow that was that was actually seriously discussed so um you know because of all of those things you know he has a Mm -hmm. much higher cultural profile than than your average horror host might have
0: yes definitely so in a lot of ways, in that pre-internet era, the horror hosts, as you've already said, became the focus of local counterculture. They, they became were, the hubs for local horror, sci-fi, whatever, counterculture.
2: Oh, absolutely. They were, hmm. they were a hub. And, and again, and this is across the country. Seriously, this is across the country because you'll, you'll find people showing up and promoting local events uh, on a number of these different shows. But San hmm. Francisco was a huge media center. Now, back in the day, they would send the cast around to various television stations for interviews. You know, after, I think it was probably in the early 80s or something, they turned that around and they just brought all the reporters down to to L.A. on press junkets and just did that all at once. Mm
3: -hmm. Prior
2: to that, stars and directors would travel from station to station, you know, the other Mm -hmm. way around. San Francisco right. was a huge, huge market, so all of these people came through town. Christopher right. Lee showed up on both Bob Wilkins and John Stanley's show.
3: Oh, um, right.
2: Wilkins interviewed you know the directors, the actors, you know um, and uh, John Stanley, even more than Wilkins really kind of turned right. the program into kind of an entertainment magazine in a sense. Right where he really emphasized bringing in uh costumed people who were doing right. events and um, uh promoting you know a lot of local screenings and he would do special programs on uh you know he did a did a whole program on the Wrath of Khan and he would mm. do tr- special trailer programs and things like that. Mm. Now Wilkins did that as well. And and Wilkins also promoted local filmmakers. That was another thing. You know, amateur mm-hmm. films would show up on the, on the Creature Features program. Some of these mm-hmm. guys went on to work in, did work in the industry later, like uh, um, uh, on The Simpsons and, and things like that. And mm-hmm. some of them went to work for Industrial Light and Magic. Now, right. one of, one of the, the big amateur filmmakers who showed up mm-hmm. on, on his show was Ernie Vesalius, premiering Hardware Wars. Oh, Which yes, was. I was
0: going to mention that. Yeah, hard, I guess Hardware Wars came from that. Huh. It, it did,
2: and but Bob, it came first from Bob Wilkins. You know, right. Ernie Fasalius had, had screened it locally, but mm-hmm. g- Ging on Creature Features really launched that as a cultural touchstone. And right. that, you know, and, and geez, they're still re-releasing that thing. I think they, <laughs> I think they just recently came out with a Blu-ray or something like this. Hmm. But... Uh, but it was really the creature features that that kicked off uh, the, the larger cultural interest in in that little movie.
0: Oh. Wow, that's that's incredible. Even up here in Canada, we still actually were uh, aware of Cardware Wars. We heard about. And I, I remember seeing it as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think on regular TV. And I guess I should bring this around actually, sorry to go because. Um, Horror hosts, as you've said, are as we said, are a North American phenomenon. But as far as I know, there aren't any Canadian horror hosts, are there? The closest, I think, the closest that you've got was the Billy Van doing uh, the hilarious House of Frankenstein. Right, yeah. right. But and that wasn't a true. They were hosting movies, though. They were. All, it was almost a parody of horror hosts. Yeah, well, it was a, an educational program. It's like
2: you right, yeah. you know, gothic uh, gothic version of Sesame Street in a way. <laughs> But that said I and that's why I say that was sort of the closest to it because it had all mm. of those elements otherwise. Right. And there was a there for a period of time in Los Angeles they mm. used footage of the hilarious house of Frankenstein Frankenstein as raps mm. for movies. Huh so oh, okay. So he was repurposed as a horror host in in LA for a while.
0: That would make sense especially with Vincent Price on the show is and that, all the
2: other... is that. Yeah that yeah hmm
0: i i have heard rumors or at least reference online that there might have been a horror host in montreal but i've never i don't know who it was supposed to be i've just seen a reference somewhere to there being a horror host in montreal i don't know if that's correct or not
2: yeah it's you know it's possible you know especially uh, do you know the period was it like in the 70s
0: i think it was in the 60s or 70s yeah yeah because around I... in the in the late 60s through the 70s there
2: they started um something uh, called super stations mm-hmm. you know like TBS and things like that which right, yes. were somewhere between local and national they're they're kind of cable mm-hmm. stations um, mm-hmm. and i know bob wilkins was syndicated to a couple of other markets up north right. on super stations so it's possible right. either that someone was was uh, like Wilkins was being shown in Montreal right. or Montreal was you know, a Montreal station saw the potential in something like this. Right. Oh, And, and even as I say that uh, there was Spacebar. you guys had space bar. Yes. On, 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 yes, the, yes. Space bar. Yep. Yeah. So that, and that's a, that's kind of close to your yes. host at least in the same way as mystery science theater 3000,
0: you That's know, true.
3: Yeah.
2: It format-wise, but that would that would come under the heading of horror host for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're right. We technically had we did have Space Bar, although again that was only within the last like 15 years, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Prior to that, we did have um. Because I'm in southwestern Ontario, as is Don, mm-hmm. uh, we did have Elvira in syndication. I remember that when I was a teenager. Right. Um. Uh, we used to. My friends and I used to actually have sleepovers, and we would stay up just to watch Elvira. Right. Um. <laughs> We were teenage boys, of course, so there was certain. <laughs> that it, it explained in... a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, staying up to watch Elvira. There's a, yeah. Movie, know, I, yeah, <laughs> there's
2: I, a movie. Yeah, there's a movie.
0: Yeah.
2: You know what? I I have to say, I myself, I I never I never found her act really appealing. Um, I
0: have to say, I agree with you, actually.
2: Yeah, and 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 with with one exception, I loved mm-hmm. her first movie, and I was mm-hmm. I was actually I was really surprised because. I found her video presentation, her programming, um, a a little obnoxious, and I Mm. I think there was it never coalesced as a complete character to me because it would Mm. she would switch from seductive to valley girl goofy with to in my mind at least with nothing really transitional. So it it really every every event seemed like an excuse for something rather than a whole. Character, but the movie, the the right. first Elvira movie, at least uh, the Mistress of the Dark, really had me laughing, and I really mm-hmm. found her likable in that. And um, it it may be because it it seemed to, in a sense, borrow a bit from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It had that mm-hmm. sort of flavor, you know. Where you know where she was able to be a focal character, you know, going through a narrative. That, mm-hmm. to me, was much more effective than, than, the, uh, than the TV presentation. you yeah, can see that. I did talk to a number of folks um, like mm-hmm. Stella in Philadelphia, um, mm-hmm. Nancy Seoli, and um, Frank and Drack, who are also out of uh, the Cleveland area. And they mm-hmm. both happily pointed out that while Elvira was being syndicated in their areas, they beat her in the ratings
3: and i can believe I that i think
2: i you know i think there is this real local loyalty thing and i'm
3: mm, positive
2: yeah. she did much much better in areas that didn't have a pre-existing host right. and by the 80s you know there were huge gaps you know yes. Um, yes. um things were really starting to fall apart at that point so you, yeah you know yeah, you we went can, from having we hundreds Canadians. of hosts yeah you had hundreds Sorry. of hosts in the 50s and 60s and it was down to dozens in the by the 80s
0: yeah. Right, yeah, I can see that. I was going to say, for we Canadians, horror hosts are, as I've said, something that an American phenomenon. There, we view them not as a local phenomenon. So for us, it's very different. Well, you, um, yeah, for, you know, for, yeah, for, for most of us, anyway. Yeah, yeah,
2: and, and and that is that is an interesting perspective, isn't it? I, I mm-hmm. I'm not sure. You know, the the only experience that I have that's like that mm-hmm. is watching hosts from England, for right. instance, yeah. like yeah. Doctor Terror or Nina and just seeing it as, you know, a representation, you know, rather than something that I've got roots with. Right. Um, because it, I found when I first started studying this, when I really developed an interest in it, um, mm-hmm. the, the first outside host that I saw outside of my, gen, my, my, my area was Sammy Terry mm-hmm. from Indianapolis. And mm-hmm. when I watched that show, I I've never been to Indianapolis in my life, but I got mm-hmm. the vibe because all of those local elements were so familiar to me from growing up mm-hmm. that that I that that resonated with me. Even though at the same time I could feel that local vibe, it was really that it was really different. And he'd be talking about how the weather was in. November, you know right. in Indianapolis, which was different from my experience, but all of the technical elements of it were exactly what I grew up with on local TV, so hmm. I could relate to that, but it it, it right. it's, it's really interesting to me to to hear from people from again from outside that bubble like like you're saying, looking yeah. at it from, more as programming than as a cultural event.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why there isn't a great, to be honest, there isn't a great level of horror host here in Canada because it wasn't part of our culture growing up. Um, I find it fascinating, but I, mostly as an outsider. Now, Don, though, has a slightly different perspective because Don grew up in Windsor, which is right next to Detroit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so in that environment, that was local programming, right, Don?
1: Yeah, because we had... um. I'm thinking by the late 70s, early 80s, we had had to be at least a dozen uh, different horror hosts that we watched. Um, part of that might have been, I've mentioned in other shows, uh, Mad Science Runs in My Family. And we had built an amp and a booster for antennas so we could put uh-huh. stuff in. We, we'd get like Cleveland stuff in that too. But yeah, at, at one point, we we had it had to be at least a dozen different horror hosts to pick from around here.
2: Yeah, like you had Sir Gastly Graves. Yeah. Uh, Sir Graves uh, Gastly, yeah. Yeah, out of Detroit and mm-hmm. um and the and the Ghoul. And I, yeah. I I remember in when talking with um with uh, uh Stella who was out mm-hmm. of uh, uh Philadelphia,
3: mm-hmm. there was a mm-hmm.
2: period where their broadcasting signal was strong enough that people were picking it up. Yeah. Um a, you know, across the plains on a, on a good night. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised that you had a bit of a reach with, with that stuff. Do you remember who else you were, you were seeing?
1: Um, yeah, we had uh, Sir Graves is a big one, The Ghoul. We had mm-hmm. Stella, uh, Big Chuck and Little John for a while.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we did get Alvira for a bit. Um, we had... Oh, poop. We had a... Um, I definitely remember, like, after watching American Scary, I remember seeing... Uh, what was it? Was it Melvin? The oh, guy no, always to... out of Chicago.
2: Now, really? Yeah. Now that was that was the early 1950s. Marvin. Yeah, so, yeah, the guy trying to kill his wife all the time. Yeah, so that was the late that was the late 1950s, like fifty eight, fifty nine. You were seeing
1: that? Yeah, some you somebody. You're not that old, Don. I know somebody must have been like. We got a lot of stuff where they'd rerun old shows and that, but. Oh. okay. Yeah, like I remember that we had a Count Scary. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, of course, yeah. Because <laughs> he, was, he was, I remember him, because him and the ghoul had a feud going for a bit.
2: Right, they co-hosted Night of the Living Dead once.
1: Yeah, mm. well that that went on for a while, that they would do uh, on each other's shows, and they would do back and forth insulting each other, and that went on for like a decade.
3: Mm. Uh-huh,
1: I'm not surprised. Yeah, because <laughs> the, 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 the Night of the Living Dead thing, that was a huge, huge event in this area.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm not... Su- <laughs> yeah. So, out of curiosity then, Michael, what was your entry to all this? Like, how you, you obviously grew up watching horror hosts. What made you take the next step of becoming almost an expert on the subject? Well, what happened was this. I, yeah,
2: I, I i grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and mm-hmm. uh, the first horror host that I saw was a fellow named Asmodeus, who was uh, mm-hmm. Frank Sheridan, who was on uh, Chemo TV 20. And that was the place that I first started seeing the universal monster movies when I when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like Dracula's Daughter, Werewolf of London, Invisible Ray. You know, these, a lot of things that I'd been reading about in Famous Monsters but had never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just really uh, grabbed me in a big way. And um, mm. then Bob Wilkins came along. And he was showing things like Horror of Party Beach and Jesse Mm -hmm. James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter Mm -hmm. and things like this. And then I started seeing these really surreal, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. uh, B-movies. And that combination just really um, energized me in a way. I loved, I loved, loved the classic Universal Monsters. But at the same time, something like Horror of Party Beach or Agent for Harm, or
3: these just
2: mm-hmm. weird damn movies that Wilkins was showing, it just became equally fascinating. And so that, it actually expanded my taste in a big, big way.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: then, as I say, we got the ghoul. Uh, we mm-hmm. also had Son of Sven uh, syndicated out here for a bit. And mm-hmm. those were sort of the last hosts that I was watching. I didn't really watch John Stanley's Creature Features much uh by that point um I had girls and mm. you know that sort of distracted me for oh, geez what year is it now? And um but so and things just generally died off until Commander USA came on the USA network and um things like that. But it was in nineteen ninety nine that there was uh, a fellow named Scott Moon put out a magazine called Planet X, and I just mm-hmm. happened to stumble across this, completely unbidden, and I had an interview with Bob Wilkins, and so I'm reading this mm-hmm. interview, I'm like, oh god, Bob Wilkins, you know, just had complete, you know, nostalgia rush, and within the interview, he talked about the fact that he had a bunch of old Creature Features tapes that he was, going, that he was starting to sell, so mm-hmm. I got a set of those tapes, and it's like 10 hours worth of Creature Features stuff Mm-hmm. And I was just—I mean—I was drunk on nostalgia. I was just slobbering <laughs> with the stuff, and that—that that was in 1999. And beyond Wilkins, it just reminded me how much I missed local TV. Period. Mm. I, you know, grew up with things like Sir Sedley and Captain Satellite and you know, even our local romper room and things like this. It's like I missed all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. and i was trading tapes with um other people at the time you know different movies and programs and stuff and started asking them if if they found anything that had a horror host on it i'd be interested in seeing it and as i say the first i saw was the sammy terry and Mm -hmm. i just absolutely loved that and then um the ghoul came back on the air in cleveland and i thought well I've got my Bob Wilkins. I gotta see some more Ghoul, and I mm-hmm. tracked down somebody who was able to um, send me a, a copy of a Ghoul tape. And in the course of the show, he mentioned this character Ghulardi, and I had no idea at that point what that meant. So that, but I thought, gotta find this Golardi man. How how can you avoid a name like that? Mm. And so then I found someone else who had a tribute to Ghulardi that the Big Chuck and Little John show did. So I mm. sit down with that tape and it's suddenly like, Holy crap, Big Chuck and Little John, I love these guys. Gillardi, I love this mm. guy. What the hell? And mm. Big Chuck and Little John were still on the air in Cleveland and I'm and really Cleveland is what sparked it because mm. they were still producing local T V in the way that I had grown up with it. You know, mm. there was the ghoul. There was Big Chuck and there was Son of Ghoul. That was all going on at the same time, at least um, you know in the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. and that to, that was just wonderful to me. And uh, eventually, I traveled out to Cleveland. Uh, I had won a, a skeleton on the Son of Ghoul show.
3: Mm-hmm. He had a
2: life size skeleton, and a friend of mine was sending me tapes every week or every other week. I'd get a box mm-hmm. of tapes with a ghoul, right. big Chuck and Senegal. And so I was able to enter this contest because I had recent shows. And so he said, you know, they're going to have a drawing with postcard, a postcard drawing for this life-size skeleton. And he said, and if you win, you can come on the show to claim it. And I said, hmm. well,
3: that's <laughs> what we're going to do.
2: So I sent in Something over a hundred postcards. I can't remember. Wow! And he said they—they they, later he told me they got like a hundred and fourteen entries.
3: <laughs> oh my god!
2: And a hundred of those were mine. <laughs> yeah, you kind of stacked the deck on that one. So, so uh, I turned to my wife and said, "We're going to Cleveland." <laughs> mm-hmm. And. As it happened, there was a convention going on out there, and I had some friends, at, and so we turned it into a vacation to Cleveland. Mm. Got to go to the Big Chuck and Little John show, and af- after the show, we got to hang out with Chuck a bit, and I'm asking him questions about various things that had happened with him and Hooley, and he looked up at me, because I'd been introduced as Mike from California, and he goes, did, <laughs> did you grow up in Cleveland? But no, 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 I'm just a real big fan. And, you know, I've been reading about this stuff. And then, you know, so I got to hang with him. I got to hang with Son of Ghoul. And all of that, you know, at the same time, I was still getting tapes from other people. And now I was shifting that specifically to collecting horror host tapes. And so Dr. Paul Behrer from, from mm-hmm. Florida, Fritz Denial from Cincinnati, the cool ghoul from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. Um, Crematia mortem and, um, you know, some Elvira's and commander USA's and it, all in, the, all these things just started it, kind of, it generated a critical mass is what happened mm-hmm. because every time I saw one of those shows, I wanted to find out more about who was behind it and, mm-hmm. you know, what was that music and, you know who directed this and who's that person hosting this? And you know, here are these artists and and people sending letters in and all that stuff. Again, it all went back to my youth, but it was it was somebody else's nostalgia.
3: Hmm.
2: But just the just seeing these broadcasters hmm. and you know and knowing what a TV studio looked like and knowing what production looked like and and seeing how each of these spoke to its local community. They would talk about a local business or a local mm-hmm. parade that was coming up. And so, you know, I was finding out about city histories at, at the same okay. time that I was finding out about host histories. And I just love that because um, it wasn't it, – it's not dead-end research. There's always somewhere else to reach within that because
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's not just a guy or gal in a suit and a wig – there's a community. There's a history behind right. all of that, and it's cultural, right. and it you right. know, and I and so it this is this is a, a pop cultural research and and genuine cultural research mm. as well. So mm. uh, that that can, all of that just continues to feed uh, my enthusiasm for it.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's that's incredible, and I can completely understand this someone who has been fascinated by the horror host phenomenon for a little while myself, I find much the same thing where it's, it is about the uh, local culture and it's amazing to see how much they do reflect the local culture, which as I said, they're a hub for that local culture. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And you know, they, they meant a lot, you know, I, Mm -hmm. and I,
2: I, you know, it's, you know, and and in one way, nostalgia is cheap because you can always reach for (laughs) it and it, and it ties the heartstrings somewhere. But I remember when like Captain Satellite would have some guy who was a Duncan yo-yo expert who would be on mm-hmm. the show and demonstrate Duncan yo-yo and then mm-hmm. the guy would announce that he was going to be down at um, Ralph's Kingdom of Toys that Saturday. Mm-hmm. And if you if you went down to Ralph's Kingdom of Toys that Saturday and saw the Duncan yo-yo guy, you saw some guy who was just on TV. Yeah, you know, and that really meant something. I saw Bob Wilkins live yeah. when I was a kid. I actually got to to help out on a show that he was doing in in Sac, mm-hmm. uh, in, um, in Stanford, and I got you know I got to meet Bob Wilkins. It was right. and it it was an an amazing thrill. And then later in his life, I got to do some conventions with him. Again, and it was and it was a different experience. It was a much mellower experience, but um, you know, there was at the time there was a romance to television, right. um, specifically because it was so limited in a way. You had four st- four stations if you were lucky, and then UHF came along, and oh my God, I can watch eight different channels, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was and you know, so you got some variety but not too much. You know, I, I do, and it's not just because I'm an old codger, but I do find modern media uh, a bit overwhelming. And mm. I think there is really something to be said about culturally, uh, uh, philosophically, emotionally, a difference between watching a show and consuming content. Hmm. To me, that's the big dividing line. When, you know, when that changed... From watching a show, which you, and, and mm-hmm. as, soon as, you, as soon as you say that, you can think of you're alone, you're with a group, you're with your family. Consuming mm-hmm. content seems like such an individualized thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that sort of there, there's a sense of isolation to it that I don't find appealing. Even if there's individual programming that is being created that I like, I still know that there's a real difference. And emotionally, what resonates much more for me were were programs that were produced for the local community, where people were literally talking to their neighbors.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I kind of, I kind of agree, but I come at it from a different way. Well, of course, because I think, um, like, especially with with like the horror hosts and that, one of the things that I always liked and I still do. Is um, you never knew what you're gonna get. You, mm-hmm. you had, you never knew what the movie was gonna be, what skits they'd be, the ones that had guests. You never knew who they're gonna be, and I find nowadays when you look at like the bigger media, um, the problem is they spend so much money to produce anything. Nobody wants to take a risk, so you don't really right. get those weird twists and surprises.
2: And mm. you know, a and speaking very very specifically to that. Commercial time used to be, what you know, it would be like fifty bucks for mm-hmm. for a commercial spot, mm-hmm. and now it's hundreds of thousands of dollars it can be or whatever, right? Yeah, you could you could screw up a local commercial at at some time and in a way that was so funny that the advertiser would laugh along with it, and everything mm-hmm. was cool. These days, yeah. you, you screw up a you, you screw up a you know a thirty thousand dollar commercial or something nobody's laughing, you know, (laughs) but just, it's not relaxed. That was, that Mm. was part of it. You could just, it was, there was so, so much of it was seat of the pants and so relaxed. Yeah. Um, and you really could get away with crap. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, one of my, one of my favorite stories and, uh, I told this, at a convention out here in San Francisco and it went down huge, but Chuck Shadowski told this, this great story. And this to me goes right to the heart of especially live television. Um, But Ernie Anderson, Gilardi was, was at war with his uh, station manager, Ted Bays. They just did not get along at all. And Ted Bays is really sort of an uptight personality. And Ernie Anderson Mm -hmm. was a a real, just screw you guy. (laughs) And um, so they're, they're constantly at each other's throats. So Ernie Anderson Used to um, uh, do a lot of sports events with mm-hmm. his Galardi All Stars, and they would take cameras down and they would film the games and film the crowds, and then they would show that footage on the Gallardi show, mm-hmm. and you know people would tune in and they'd see themselves in the stands waving, and you know, and there'd be Galardi, you know talking over the uh, the events of the of the game and goofing on all that stuff, and it was it was big fun, and people got mm-hmm. to see themselves. So Ted Bayes, for no other reason than to piss off Ernie Anderson, said, from now on, no more overtime for the cameraman. No cameras, that's your games. Huh. And so Ernie Anderson mm. went on the show that night, and he said, well, I know a lot of you came, came out to the game yesterday, and you're tuning in tonight to see the footage. Mm. Well, our production manager, Ted Bays." doesn't think much of you.
3: <laughs>
2: oh. And he doesn't think much of your families or your <laughs> friends who are tuning in to watch as well. So, <laughs> if you have any complaints, and he reaches down, pulls up a card, here's his home phone number.
3: <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: and, he, and he said... Bays had to change his number because it was <laughs> it was blocked for days. He could not right. get a call in or out. That's
3: you know, and,
2: you know that's the power of local TV. You know, mm-hmm. and and a local personality as well.
0: Mm. <laughs> wow, that's great. Oh, I love so, that story. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an amazing story. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so. It hasn't, but in some ways, hasn't like YouTube almost replaced that local TV? Even though it's national, even though it's or, inter, or international, people are now doing that kind of local shtick, but they're doing it on YouTube for a world audience. Yeah, you know, but that, isn't that a weird thing? Um, mm-hmm. it, in a way, it's it to me, it's the experience that
2: you that you described, looking at um, American TV horror hosts from across the border and seeing mm-hmm. having a different experience of it because of that. Right. you know um it's a different bubble, and um i I view
3: mm-hmm.
2: YouTube in a in a much much different way than I do um, you know uh television one uh, mm-hmm. you know, especially the way television used to be, what television was and part of that is. Because it, it it it's almost it, it's almost
3: converse,
2: conversely, um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but it's it's like because they the choices are seemingly infinite. You make mm-hmm. very very few choices.
0: Hmm. Right.
2: You know. You really you target a couple of things that you keep returning to.
0: Right. You know either
2: you know directly or thematically, mm-hmm. and so you're really limiting a lot of everything else one of the experiences of local TV that I had was say there was a program on or a movie on that I really really wanted to see oh my Mm -hmm. gosh they're showing Son of Kong and Mm -hmm. I really want to see that it's on at 3 p.m. on Channel 7 well 2 p.m. on Channel 7 they're showing Wide World of Sports right Mm -hmm. I don't give a crap about sports Mm -hmm. I really I never did so here I am I'm stuck It's coming up to 3 o'clock, and I'm a kid, and I am bored. So I turn on the TV, and I turn it to Channel 7 because I don't want to miss the beginning of King Kong or Son of Kong. And there's Wide World of Sports, and I'm just yawning. And then then they cut to winter sports, and it's a slalom. And it's like, wow, that's cool. And then the following week, if they're still doing winter sports, I'm waiting for the slalom. Because I want to see that. That's really cool. That's really interesting. So, you make discoveries. You know, being kind of forced into a, into a limited pattern, you actually, I think, I find that you discover more. Um, now, in completely by accident, you might find something that that you weren't interested in that you're now interested in. And the same mm-hmm. sort of thing goes even with like cap, uh, cable and satellite stuff. When I was a kid, I grew up. I would watch Warner Brother cartoons, um, Popeye mm-hmm. cartoons. All the all this stuff was on on TV. Now it's all on the Cartoon Channel. Yeah, yeah. You go to one place for cartoons. You know mm-hmm. when you when it was on during the afternoon with with my kid shows, it would be on in between. There would be cartoons I don't care about, or cartoons. Oh my God, that's a really really early Daffy Duck because that is not the Daffy Duck that I am used to. And then suddenly I'm learning about cartoon history because I'm not choosing every single thing that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, I'm forced to to see things that um, I don't necessarily have an an immediate interest in, but suddenly the things that I'm interested in gain a perspective that they otherwise Mm -hmm. would not have had. Mm -hmm. So, and I know it it sounds, you know, um, you know, I, I, Again, I just I don't want to sound like an old crank because <laughs> because the internet absolutely allowed me to track down a lot of things that I uh, otherwise would not have found or certainly wouldn't have found as quickly as as I would have just you know writing a note and slapping a stamp on it. Although that's how I originally got in contact with people in Cleveland, and right. uh, but at the same you know at the same time the internet you know uh, allowed me to find. Uh, old mystery science theater shows that were done on KTMA when it was a local station. Mm-hmm. I read about them in an article, and within a week, I had a box on my on my porch that had like three shows. Mm-hmm. Boom! That's the internet, and that you know that's the definite benefit. That's the that's where it's a great tool, and the same and the same with uh, with YouTube. I, there's there's a film critic in England that I love, and mm-hmm. so. You know, and he posts the blog, so I'm there every, almost daily. I'm checking out something that this person is doing. So there's no way I would I would do away with any of that stuff at, at all. It's just as a personal preference, I like stumbling into things and discovering things. And I, I, I just don't always get a sense that you, you know, um, it's easy to get into a rut if you just look and find and accept the things exactly as you want them you know mm. so and so my my feelings are really sort of mixed uh on on that sort of thing and then additionally i've got a i've got a huge dvd library a huge dvd blue blu-ray library I and i i you know i i kiss them good night every night <laughs> you know i just i love the damn mm-hmm. things. but at the same time i also have memories when i was a kid of opening the TV guide and looking for monster movies and circling those movies, making my schedule for the week. And um, in some cases, you know, there would be something that was on at at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning when Mm -hmm. I was a kid, and I'd have Mm -hmm. to find some sneaky way of making that happen. (laughs) And suddenly it's a different experience. Now I've got a story, you know. I have the same movie on my shelf. The mood hits me to see it. Three seconds later, it's in you know it's on my screen, mm-hmm. and I'm watching it. And and man, that is just the most wonderful thing. I would never give that up. But at right. the same time, there's not a story behind it. It's just me watching yeah. a movie now.
0: Yeah, right. Whereas having to stay up till 3 a.m. to watch uh, Reptilicus <laughs> right. on a, on a late night channel there's something about that, at least when you're a kid anyway, that, um, is, yeah, it's, it, it adds some spice to your life. It's, it's a, it's an experience and it's an event. Yeah. I, I literally was
2: doing jumping jacks and walking in circles so I could mm-hmm. stay up and see Frankenstein meets the space monster. That was on <laughs> one thirty on channel five. I, yep. I stumbled a, across it in the guide just before I went to bed and I said, well, mm-hmm. somebody's staying up and I, <laughs> Right, <laughs> and so that that movie looms large in in my memory because of it. I mean that I love that film,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: it is it is the biggest piece of crap. And I, <laughs> <Right>. but it's <laughs> my biggest piece of crap, and I will hug that piece of crap until I get it all over me because I, I I've I've got just a relationship with that film now.
0: Right, yeah. That's one of the wonderful things about broadcast television. Yeah. 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 So, Michael, you have authored several books on the subject. Can you tell our audience about them? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I wrote uh,
2: uh, two books so far on mm-hmm. the history of horror, TV horror host. Uh, the first was American Scary, which is mm-hmm. a, a companion piece to the film. And mm-hmm. essentially, within the first week that we were in production, I had said to Sandy, "This this is driving me nuts because... We're doing one-hour, 90-minute interviews with these people, Mm. and only three or four minutes of any of these interviews is going to show up in this film. But, my God, Mm. the information that we've got, there's got to be a way of presenting it. And uh, we discussed a a few ideas, and one of them uh, was to just let me have the interviews at the end of the day, once production was done, and put it out in book form, which is what I did. And, mm-hmm. and which also allowed me to uh refocus the uh mm-hmm. the topic the way that I wanted to uh Sandy and John were uh, equally interested in people who were producing programming on public access and the internet, seeing it mm-hmm. as an extension of what was what had been happening with local t v My mm-hmm. feeling was that those things that were being produced for new media were essentially cosplay. There were people Mm. dressing up in costumes because broadcasting was the key element to me. All Mm. of the stuff we were talking about had its roots in television broadcasting and whatever the new media is, it's not Mm -hmm. locally produced broadcast TV. Mm. And so that's where my focus is. And I was able to do that with the book by, um, uh, setting the interviews up chronologically so people could see over the course of the interviews the changes in the media and the media landscape that mm-hmm. led to the end of the local broadcasting era, the end of horror hosts, and then and again, why that is such a precious, precious thing in our mm-hmm. cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Immediately after that, I wrote a book called uh, Shock It To Me, which was the history of the local San Francisco horror host market. And mm-hmm. that was, uh, Shock It To Me comes from the program hosted by Asmodius that I mentioned earlier, which was Shock It To Me mm-hmm. Theater. And so I was able to uh, discuss the, the first horror host that we had on the air. who uh, was named Terrence who created a riot on the campus of uc berkeley mm-hmm. by uh, by saying that he would show up there and there was a there was a headline uh the following day uh, he had shown dracula that night and uh, mm-hmm.
3: uh
2: he the the headline said uh you know thousand uc students uh in dracula fracas
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right which, and I just, you know, Drac- just alone, Dracula Fracas, greatest name for a band ever. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. But, uh, I, and, and again, I just love that there's your immediate cause and effect. You know, guys mm. on TV says, hey, I'll be there, let's go. And the kids all show up.
3: <laughs> mm. <laughs> and the next
2: day it's in the papers. Um, but then I got to talk about Asmodeus and uh, Terrence and Asmodeus had not been written about at all. There was no history with them. So I was really proud to be able to Put that stuff together. We talked to some guys from Chemo who had worked on the on the Asmodia show and uh, mm-hmm. got a lot of information. That was great. Got to write about Bob Wilkins and John Stanley, and then also the Ghoul and Sennis Fingulie because they were syndicated here and did have an effect. So those are the two big books. Uh, but I wrote some articles for Scary Monsters magazine um, on individual hosts as well as just some more generalized. Post info, um, Horror Hound Magazine. Uh, right. And I'm currently working on a, a new book that will basically cover the national phenomena the same way that I did the local phenomena for um, for Shock to Me. Um, the working title is TV Spook Show, um, hmm. Broadcast hmm. Ghosts and Horror Hosts. And um, title. It, so it's really basically talking about the analog era of television and mm-hmm. the horror host place and all
3: of that.
0: Wow, that's some definitely something to keep an eye out for. I will definitely read that when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is there anywhere our uh, listeners can go to contact you or learn more about you, Michael? Um, it, you know, if people are interested,
2: I don't have, uh, I don't have a website or a Facebook page. I'm just not. To me, face a Facebook page is like those uh, those little those Japanese digital animals
0: that mm. die if you uh, don't feed them. Tamagotchi. Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. You know, someone mm-hmm. gave me one of those once and it died in its own crap.
3: <laughs> right.
2: You know, and, and that's, that's my feeling about Facebook is like, you gotta, you have to feed it every day and it becomes mm-hmm. a huge responsibility. I'm not interested, but right. that said, <laughs> if people are interested and very seriously, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. always happy to be in contact with people. Um, they can reach me at at my um, um, email address, which is uh, drgoulefinger at gmail dot com, and mm-hmm. the spelling on that it's all lowercase. D O K T O R G O U L F I N G E R, one word, lowercase um mm-hmm. and if, if if people have questions about their local host or want to share stories about their local host um i'm seriously more more than happy to to communicate because uh, that stuff really is um is my bread and butter i, I um mm. it's a history i really really love
0: well and it shows we can tell just listening to you <laughs> that you absolutely adore this subject yeah you can tell because you can't get me to shut up about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish we could go on for another hour or two, but unfortunately we we try to keep the shows under two hours if we no. can. So um, Don't um, but, blame but, me a bit. <laughs> no, no. Um, and of course they can also learn more about the horror phenomenon if they track down the movie American Scary that's been referenced already.
2: Absolutely. And uh and the, the book American Scary, which is even better, uh, can be purchased through Amazon. And the Shock It to Me book privately produced so they can contact mm-hmm. me directly, uh, oh, okay. or if they're interested in buying a copy of that.
0: You might consider putting that up on, um, Kindle sometimes, like the whole ebook thing. You could actually publish that yourself for literally no cost on online. You know, that's, yeah, that's a really good point. And, uh, I, I think we just,
2: we, that was going to be, I, I had a friend who was helping with that, um, mm-hmm. hubber, uh, who, mm-hmm. uh, passed away, uh, Two years ago, and uh, but he had, he was the guy who really pushed me to, to finish this book and to mm-hmm. make it as comprehensive as I finally did. And he also did all the layouts on it. And right. once once we were finished with it, that was our next discussion was was uh, creating uh, either an electronic book or, um, you know, doing uh, further printing on through Kindle or something like that, and just right. never. So that just never happened. I still got a lot of I still got a lot of hard copies on me, and uh, mm. I'm, you know, more than happy to get those out there because it really is a
3: good book.
0: All right, so I think we're going to bring the show to a close then. So Don,
1: any final thoughts before we go? Oh no, I think this is uh this is a you brought a lot of good info because a lot of what you were talking about ties in with stuff from other shows, and it's interesting that. Everything all kind of pulls together. When you look at, say, especially like the horror host, you start realizing that there had to be so many things in place that hit all at the same time that allows something like this to uh, to truly flourish.
2: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you, you nailed it. It was really a convergence uh, of factors that, that led to this. Otherwise, it would have just been a little piddling thing happening here and there. But you know, you're absolutely right.
3: Mm. It,
2: yeah, and it was that shock package. It was the same thing <laughs> as you know, as Elvis or the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You know, those are <laughs> events that really just changed the course of popular culture.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, in an amazing way. Mm. Okay, so thank you everyone for listening to uh the show tonight. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. And happy Halloween to everyone listening to this. Yeah, happy tonight, Halloween. Folks. Enjoy. <laughs> Woo. Hi Operatives, Rob here Our interview with Michael Monahan went so well That the three of us actually ended up talking For another hour and a half after the show Luckily for everyone The recorder was still running And so next week I'll be putting the highlights Of that after show chat into the feed It's some great stuff About the nature of community and media How horror hosts are literally fading away And how horror hosts reacted to 9-11 You do not want to miss it in fact, it's such good stuff, we're offering you the chance to hear it early. We've put up a listener survey on the show's website at ObeyTheDNA.com, and everyone who fills it out in the next week will get an early link to download the extra show as thanks for filling it out. But, even if you're not interested in getting the early show, or if you're listening to this after Halloween 2016, we'd love it if you drop by and filled out our listener survey. The more we know about you, beyond your incredibly good taste in podcast listening, of course, the better we can give you the kind of thing you enjoy. Don and I do this show based on our own tastes, but this show is a community effort, and we want to hear your voices as well. So thanks for listening, and tune in in two weeks, when we'll be exploring the changing nature of nerdliness with guest Jack Ward. Good night, folks. Stay nerdly. Thanks for listening to the show.